Hello and welcome to episode number 14 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about Bach's orchestral suites number 3 and 4. Orchestral suite number 3 is in D major in common time, and if you've had a chance to listen to episode 13, there is relatively little about this opening French overture that will surprise you. The work is scored for the standard complement of strings and continuo, supplemented by a pair of oboes and three trumpets and timpani, a configuration which, as one might imagine, puts even more emphasis on ceremonial splendor than usual. The initial thematic idea is presented by the oboes in violin one. Although not based specifically on the familiar Dada 8th 16th rhythms, it follows the same pattern of some of the previous French overture themes, a sustained note followed, in this case, by a group of shorter notes outlining a stately and broadly spanned melody. We'll call this motive A. Against this, the familiar dotted eighth sixteenth patterns are soon asserted by second violins and violas, and after two bars the trumpets as well, at which point those dotted rhythms, which we'll call motive B, become the dominating element. Here's a simplified example showing motive one in the oboes against motive two, the dotted eighth sixteenth patterns, in the second violin and violas. Beneath all of this activity, we hear a tonic pedal, which is sustained beneath the changing chords above, even as the trumpets punctuate the strong beats of the measure with eighth note chords. This sort of tonic pedal is hardly a new concept for Bach, or for any Baroque composer, and we saw something similar in the opening bars of the second orchestral suite, but the idea is carried on a bit further here, and it does succeed in providing a little extra tension before we cadence securely on the tonic in the fourth bar. We'll hear the opening eight bars in an actual performance. As we proceed through the slow section, the trumpets drop out, but the main thematic ideas continue to develop, motives A and B sometimes combining within a single phrase. We move first toward the key of the dominant, A major, shortly thereafter to E minor, where the familiar motives take on a different quality. When we return to A major, the trumpets and timpani return along with it, and we hear a busier variant of the opening theme, which takes us to the end of the section. The fugue theme, which introduces the second, faster-moving section, is by no means Bach's most distinctive invention. It starts on the dominant and charges methodically up the scale, employing one of Bach's favorite figures, based on the long, short-short pattern of eighths followed by two sixteenths. Here's a simplified example showing the fugue subject and the first fugal entrance. The actual fugue subject is usually assumed to include only the first bar and a half, with what follows in the first violins and oboes usually described as the first counter subject, 
against which the first imitative answer comes in at the fifth as usual, but actually down an octave, from the second violins and oboes. This countersubject is characterized by arpeggio-based leaps with a number of eighth-note ties over strong beats. So, although the subject is fairly simple and straightforward, it doesn't take long for the texture to get rather complex. The violas supply the next fugal answer, and against it, the first countersubject is now joined by a second, a series of sixteenth notes in a flow which begins with an arpeggio figure, but which quickly evolves into undulating scale-wise passages. When the continual bass line finally joins the party, there is something like a third countersubject added to the mix, the first violins and oboes contributing a series of repeated eighth notes before jumping back in with the fugal subject, this time on the top of all of the three countersubjects already alluded to. After the initial fugal exposition actually overlapping with its conclusion, the trumpets and timpani re-enter, providing punctuating chords that propel us back to D major with even greater energy. From that point on, the fugue theme is spun out vigorously, particularly in the continual bass, but with bits of imitation popping up elsewhere, especially in the trumpets, who are now beginning to show more and more rhythmic independence. Here's the opening of the fugal section in an actual recording. When the trumpets and timpani drop out once again, which you could hear right at the end of my example, we hear a quieter episode dominated by string figuration only loosely based on the original fugue subject. We then encounter a typical device for Bach. While the 16th note passages bustle about, he provides the oboes with long, sustained two-part lines against them, in some cases sustaining the dissonant seventh of the prevailing chord to increase the harmonic tension, even as motives from the fugue theme continue to echo through the texture. Eventually, the fugue subject proper returns, quickly migrating to the other parts at the bottom of a complex texture full of references to the previous countersubjects. This intense level of activity quiets again for a new episode, which begins in the strings alone and is initially based on broad-span 16th note arpeggio figures, but eventually adds in the rest of the orchestra. But of course, even this episode, though it may be devoid of fugal imitation, is by no means lacking in references to the fugue subject. The sustained oboe passages make a return here, but the first violins continue to dominate, leading us into the final exposition, where the subject is introduced once again by first violins and oboes, accompanied by its countersubjects, of course, and answered as before by second violins and oboes, and subsequently by violas and the continual bass. As we race toward the end of the section, everyone eventually gets into the act, even the trumpets, who provide their own version of the fugue theme, before we surge into the final cadence back in D major and the return of the opening slow section. This final section is not identical to the first, but contains all of the same elements, even though they are somewhat reconfigured, and there is more rhythmic energy this time around, certainly appropriate considering the mad dash that was the fast fugal section. 
The next movement is the famous air, rather dubiously referred to as the air on the G-string, a nickname it picked up quite a bit after the fact and based on a later arrangement. But it's a justly famous movement, nonetheless, with arguably the most widely loved melody Bach ever wrote. What is its secret? Is there something remarkable about the melody? Or the accompanying harmony? And the answer is, of course, both, especially the ways in which they intertwine. The movement is scored for strings and continue alone, and the melody is played by the first violins, with violin two and violas filling in the harmony and occasionally responding to the violin one's melody with variants of their own. The melody begins with a sustained note on the third of the scale against which the continual bass establishes a descending bass line, embellished in this case by the bass leaping to its upper octave before descending a step. We've seen this sort of melody before, floating over a descending bass line, of course, and Bach's melodies of this type always seem to be unusually expressive, but this one is even more remarkable than most. As the bass descends by step beneath a sustained melody note, it initially creates mild dissonances, which immediately add atmosphere and a strong sense of motion even as the melody appears suspended. Of course, the opening melody note is sustained for only a little more than a measure, tied in fact to the first eighth note of the second bar. But the tempo taken here is usually rather slow, often quite leisurely in fact, and the effect everything seemingly moving in slow motion, especially compared to the almost frenzied level of activity heard at times in the previous movement, is quite striking. While the melody sustains through the first bar, it becomes much more active in the second, with melodic figures initially based on sixteenth notes that begin by leaping up a fourth before gently working their way down more than an octave. The next two bars, now seemingly shifted to F-sharp minor, compress the action of the first two, the sustained note reduced to a half note, followed by a flurry of sixteenth note activity. Here's a simplified example of just the melody for the first four bars. It's a perfectly coherent melody, bar 4 obviously a step lower sequential repetition of bar 3, but it isn't necessarily magical in and of itself, and that's because my example leaves out the descending bass line. I've already mentioned that the descending bass line creates subtle dissonances against the sustained melody in the first measure, but the bass line, as it continues its descent, continues to create increasingly effective dissonances, sometimes against grace notes in the melody, sometimes against the suspension-like figures in the inner parts. And the effect of these dissonances, none of them sharp, but all of them telling, is cumulative. The first section of the air is only six bars long, and yet contains within it a world of emotional nuance. Here's the first section in an actual performance.
The second section of the movement, continuing in A major where the first left off, is longer and more complex. The melody in the first violins is busier and more melismatic, but still tied to motives heard in the first four bars. The second violins and violas play a more significant role here, providing more active contrapuntal lines against the melody and, as before, filling in where the melody sustains. The continual bass line breaks with its original pattern and is somewhat more active melodically, but descending motion still prevails. In the first four bars we move toward B minor, but the tonality remains restless. There is rather a dramatic turn of events occurring in measure 7, where the bass unexpectedly turns around and begins to ascend, building up this wonderful sense of urgency and momentum. And the second violin, now with the most important melodic material, surges upward with it. This ascending motion is short-lived, basically functioning to bring about a powerful modulation to E minor, which, upon its arrival, is not unexpectedly embellished with yet another poignant suspended dissonance. The first violins eventually reclaim melodic primacy, moving gradually up to a melodic peak as the bass once again returns to its descending shape. And while the final measures are certainly florid enough, there is still a sense of gentle resignation as the bass breaks its pattern to prepare for the final cadence on D major. Here's the second section, as usual, without the repeat. The next movement is a gavotte, actually a pair of them, the second serving as a trio of sorts to the first, after which the first is repeated, an arrangement similar to what we heard in orchestral suite number one. The movement is scored for the complete orchestra and the three trumpets play an active role, at least initially, the first trumpet doubling the melody along with the two oboes and first violins. Trumpets two and three and the second violins provide the harmony in a primarily homophonic texture with the continual bass as usual showing a bit of independence and filling in the rhythmic gaps. Although gavats are often sprightly enough, the prominence of the three trumpets here give the opening a surprisingly robust flavor. The opening tune is a simple one, starting in the middle of the measure as is typical for gavats, but does exhibit quite a few large leaps, octaves and sevenths, in just the first two bars. The melody is, as usual for Bach, well integrated, the second full measure basically a sequential repetition of the first, and with the strings responding to the trumpet's rather martial-sounding opening gambit, 
with a rhythmically energetic but relatively subdued phrase, which itself draws on the trumpet's motive. The second half of the first section, where the trumpets return, is basically a varied repetition of the first half, adjusted to allow for a modulation to A major, the dominant of the key, with the strings on their own for the last four bars. Here's the opening section. Although the lower voices are more active in the second section, the melody, initially taken by strings alone, is predictably closely related to the first, but cleverly altered to include a free inversion of the key motives in its opening measures. In bar four, we return to the original form of the theme introduced by the trumpets. We started this section, of course, in A major, where the first section concluded, but we report quickly back to D major before flirting with other key areas, this sort of thing being pretty typical for the second sections of many of the suite movements we've looked at before. After the second section comes to a cadence on D major, we move on immediately to the second gavotte. This gavotte does not offer a substantially thinner texture, at least not initially, but it does offer some distinctly new melodic ideas, including an extroverted, martial-sounding theme combining lower neighbor figures with triadic leaps, which gives way to a more delicate, but still rhythmically active, dance-like figure for strings alone. These two ideas compete charmingly for the entire 16-bar first section. So here's section number one of the second gavotte. The second section of the second gavotte provides even more variety, and for the most part is more delicately scored. Motivic ideas from the first section are still present, but there's a great deal more variety in the texture as melodic lines are passed on from one instrument to the next. Here's the second section of the second gavotte. <laughs> A bore comes next. Bach includes at least one in each of his orchestral suites, and this one shares with the others a sprightly, rhythmically energetic personality. The opening melody, played by the violins, is typical of its type, but does contain some features worthy of remark. Starting on the third of the D major scale, it moves up a couple of steps, takes a large ascending leap on the weak beat, comes back down immediately, and then descends three steps. This basic shape is heard four times in the first eight bars, interrupted by scale-wise passages preparing for the two cadences. These repeated weak beat leaps are the most distinctive aspect of the tune, although the actual interval evolves as the melody unfolds, increasing in size each time the figure appears. Almost as distinctive are the contributions of the accompanying instruments, notably the trumpets and timpani, which add rhythmic punctuations primarily on the second and third beats of the bar, while also doubling the melody at key points prior to cadences. Here's the first section, eight measures long. Mm -hmm. 
true to form, the second, longer section features some of the same ideas as the first. Beginning in A major but moving quickly into new tonal areas, the first four bars resemble the first four of the first section. But the next four introduce new motivic variants into the mix as we head toward E minor and, although the rhythmic accompaniment patterns from the first section continue, especially the punctuations on beats two and three, we soon find ourselves in B minor, although only very briefly, before heading back to the original tonic of D major. And although we might anticipate a little tonal stability at that point, and maybe even an exact repeat of the opening bars from section one, that's not quite what happens. Bach toys a little with our expectations, repeating the opening bar of the melody, but then spinning it out in new directions. We recognize all the familiar motives, it's just that they've been recontextualized and redesigned to quickly tilt us in the direction of G major. But of course that key turns out to be something of a mirage as well, and after a nifty deceptive cadence that serves briefly as a delaying action, we sneak into D major and the trumpets and timpani escort us to the final cadence. Here is the second section of the bourree. Jigs tend to be the most easily recognizable of the dances in the standard Baroque suite, but this is the only one of Bach's four orchestral suites to include one. This one is a particularly nifty example, with a jaunty 6-8 tune presented by the whole orchestra initially. From that point on, the trumpets dip in and out, sometimes doubling the violins and oboes melody, and sometimes providing their own variant of the tune, and frequently joining in before a cadence to add a little heft to the texture. The melody itself, which begins with a pickup leap of an ascending fifth from the tonic note of D, proceeds with something akin to a stately dignity at first, moving in dotted quarters initially before breaking into an eighth note flow, which, by the way, has already been anticipated by the very active continual bass line in the very first bar. The melodic movement is mostly conjunct or stepwise, working up to the higher octave D and then undulating back down again. We'll call that idea one. Here's a simplified version of the opening four-bar phrase showing melody and continual bass only. You can hear from my simplified example that the continual bass part shows a fair amount of independence from the main melody, displaying a particularly distinctive pattern that flips back and forth between the tonic and its lower neighbor. But while the bass line has ideas of its own, the other accompanying parts, for example the second violins and violas, are generally providing supporting harmony within a homophonic texture. In fact, the degree to which this movement is devoid of independent counterpoint is a bit surprising. Gigs, including box gigs, are often fugal, but this one is not. After the first four-bar phrase, where we might expect a fugal answer, we get only a slightly altered repeat of the first phrase, redesigned to move us from D major to A major, and then a little later to E minor, as the motive first heard in the bass in my earlier example, now gets distributed throughout the texture, including two of three trumpets. The rest of the 16-bar section is taken up with a spinning out of the original undulating triplet motives from the first four bars, idea number one included, 
as we continue to modulate back to D major and then to the key of the dominant A major where the section comes to an end. Here is the first section in its entirety an actual performance. It will come as no surprise that the second section is, at 48 bars, twice as long as the first. It begins in similar fashion, adjusted for the change in key, the second four bars being a varied repetition of the first four a step higher, creating a modulation to B minor. But now, the original bass line motive once again comes to the fore, heard in two different versions in the strings, oboes, and trumpets, and spun out to bring about a modulation first back to A major, and then D major, and then, as it continues to develop, F-sharp minor. But we're not finished yet. These second sections of the binary dance movements are often somewhat more unstable, tonally speaking, than the opening sections, and this one is even more than most. And before we know it, we're sitting in G major and then E minor, every key change causing the listener to hear the repeated melodic motives in a slightly new way. We never get an exact recapitulation of the original first section theme, but we never really left those melodic ideas behind anyway, and we do get a final return to D major, and after a little harmonic side trip created by a chromatically descending line in the bass, we make our way to the final cadence escorted out by trumpets and timpani. Here's the entire second section. on now to the fourth and final orchestral suite. It's also in D major, and begins, of course, with a French overture, parts of which in this case were also employed in Bach's Christmas Oratorio. Its instrumentation includes three trumpets, perhaps added later according to some scholars, a woodwind contingent consisting of three oboes and a bassoon, and the normal complement of strings and continual. As to its distinctive features, well, basically, we have, in the first few measures, the usual suspects. A tonic pedal in the bass, beneath changing chords above, although the pedal is articulated at the end of each bar with a dotted rhythm this time, rather than sustained. Heraldic trumpet and timpani figures, punctuating the accented beats. Dotted eighth and sixteenth rhythmic figures, distributed throughout the texture. And a main theme, this time heard first in the first oboe, closely tied to the tonic triad, which begins with a sustained note and is followed by a pattern of quick-moving sixteenths, often propelling up the scale. This melodic motive, similar to at least two we've heard before in the French overtures, is subsequently shared by, 
and sometimes alternated with the first violin, which often comes up with its own variant. And yet this movement, like all of Bach's French overtures, in spite of their similarities, has a distinctive personality, more pensive and expectant than regal this time, with a little more dramatic tension created by the pedal, which is reestablished a few measures later as the key shifts to A major, and by the sometimes sustained dissonances between the first violins and oboe. By the time we get to the last few measures of the opening slow section, that tension has largely dissipated, as first violins and first oboe join together in unison before heading to a cadence on the dominant of A major. Here is the opening slow section. fast fugal section that follows, which is the 9-8 meter and a flow of undulating triplets in the second oboe and violins that begins on the fifth of the A major chord and descends briefly before surging higher. The fugal imitation comes quickly, a bar and a half later, with the third oboes and violas imitating the subject of fourth lower, briefly creating parallel sixths with the continuing subject above it. The second oboes and violins then move on to what initially seems like a rather stagnant counter-subject figure, dotted eighths and sixteenths on a repeated D before moving on to a more distinctive pattern of undulating eighth note triplets with one note in the middle of the pattern popping up dramatically. Neither of these two counter-subject ideas, when first encountered, appears as particularly significant, but in fact both are to play a very large role as the fugal section of the movement proceeds. The dotted eighth sixteenth pattern, playing off against the triplet eighth notes, becomes one of the most important driving forces of the movement, and the undulating eighth notes with the pop-up in the middle also goes on to play a surprisingly important role in defining the character of the movement. Meanwhile, the subject soon reappears in the first oboes and violins, answered this time by the continual bass and bassoon. Soon thereafter, we're beginning to experience our first modulation to E minor as the various layers of counterpoint start to compile, with references to the subject, counter-subject, and new emerging contrapuntal patterns adding up to a very busy texture. 
Next, the trumpets and timpani enter, accenting the strong beats of the measure as we flit from one key area to the next. It's at this point that the dotted 8 16th patterns from the first bar of the counter subject start to come into play in a big way. But Bach has other ways of enriching the contrapuntal flow. As we've noted in other orchestral suites, Bach loves to introduce variety into the texture by employing smaller solo groups from time to time in a concerto-like manner. We hear it first in an extended passage for woodwinds alone. Many of the motivic ideas are familiar, but there's a dramatic change in sonority as the three oboes and bassoon take center stage, moving quickly through a series of closely related keys. After 19 bars, strings, timpani, and trumpets re-enter, exposing variants of the familiar motives and once again emphasizing the dotted 8th 16th rhythms of the counter-subject. Soon, the concerto-like fluctuations between different groups comes even faster, the strings alone for a measure or two, followed by the woodwinds, and then the whole orchestra, sometimes featuring trumpets, sometimes not. As the movement proceeds, we hear a wide variety of instrumental combinations in various keys, although it's the strings alone that are allowed the final statement before finally arriving back at the original tonic of D major and the reintroduction of the fugue theme in oboe and violin one, now adorned with a dotted 8th 16th note countersubject motive that sounds suspiciously like the one heard in the opening measures of the initial slow section of the movement. The subject is duly imitated for the last time, and we drive to the final cadence, variants of the countersubject blazing away in various parts, and the texture at its fullest once again as the trumpets in timpani make their presence felt. Here, then, is the faster fugal section of the movement.
The return of the slow section is, once again, not a direct recreation of the opening bars, but it begins by employing some of the same motives, minus the articulated pedal, as it makes its way in somewhat surprising harmonic fashion from D major through E minor to an A major chord, which, functioning as dominant, takes us right back to D major. This time, Bach brings back most, if not all, of the original music, although even now there are some differences, especially in the continual bass. As we near the end of the section and the conclusion of the movement, the pedal idea finally returns, now on dominant, and typically for Bach, he introduces a bit of harmonic tension before finally moving into the final cadence on D major. The pair of bourrées that follow, the second again serving as a trio to the first, are every bit as attractive as those appearing in every previous orchestral suite. Starting as usual with two eighth note pickups, the opening melody entrusted to the first oboe with a little help from the first trumpet features an almost constant series of short syncopations, the initial downbeat quarter note passing either to a half note or to a quarter tied to an eighth. The pickup notes are a standard bourré feature, and the short, long, short syncopations also play an important role in sections of the Bore Orchestral Suite No. 3, and especially No. 1. In this case, the melodic motion centers around the third of the D major chord for the first bar, while the second bar features the dramatic drop of a fifth. The next two bars are a transposed variant of the first two, and the final four bars of the first section employ some of the same motives as they drive to a cadence on the dominant. Here's a simplified version of the first eight bars with only the oboe melody and bassoon bass. While in the first section the strings function largely to provide rhythmic punctuation while the woodwinds take care of the melody and harmonic support, the roles are largely reversed in the second section, at least initially. The original melody and supporting harmony parts, now given to the strings, are not duplicated, but, as we've seen so many times before, reuse some of the most distinctive motives, especially in this case, the syncopated drop of a fifth. In the last eight bars of the section, the woodwinds once again take on the more important motivic material, alternating with the strings, before all join together, even the three trumpets, for the final cadence back in D major. Here's a performance of the entire second section. The second bourrée, shifting to B minor, again functions like a trio to the first, its texture is lighter, and it's dominated by a bassoon melody which runs beneath the more sustained oboe parts for virtually the entire 12 bars. Here's the first section of the second bourrée. As usual, the second section of the bourrée, 16 bars in all, repeats many of the same ideas, but heads in a different direction tonally, stopping off for a while in E minor before working its way back to B minor, after which Bourrée one is again repeated. An elegant gavotte is next, two of which were also included in suites numbers one and three. First oboe and violins present the first statement of the theme, 
which starts again with two pickup notes, leaping up a fourth, the second of which is suspended across the bar. These across-the-bar ties are one of the most distinctive features of the melody, that in its back-and-forth melodic alternations between oboes and violins. Also of interest are the unusually vigorous rhythmic figures, which keep popping up in the bassoon and continual bass, driving the melody on just when it seems as if it's getting a bit too sedate. Here's the entire first section, only ten bars long. Following a familiar pattern, the second half of the section makes use of many of the same ideas, but by means of a sequential pattern which is carried through a little further than usual for Bach, we check into some new key centers, initially B minor, then G major, before moving back to B minor and then settling back to the tonic of D major for the final cadence. There's only one gavotte here, rather than the pair of gavottes we've heard in two of the previous orchestral suites, but it's a highly energetic one, with the second longer section showing a definite increase in rhythmic activity as those vigorous rhythmic patterns, which we heard first only in the bass line, now spread through the rest of the texture. The gavotte is followed by a pair of minuets, a dance making its third appearance in the dance suites. It's in triple meter, of course, and its style will be somewhat familiar after the others we've heard. The melody of the first of these, played again by first oboe and first violins, with the other oboes and strings filling in the harmony, and with the bassoon and continual bass providing movement, is simple but elegant, unfolding initially in symmetrical four-bar phrases. Its most distinctive feature reveals itself immediately. The second and third beats of the first bars are embellished with a trill, after which follows a graceful descent in eighth notes. Measures five through eight are similar to the first four, with the trill motive occurring twice, the second pushing us toward a cadence on the dominant. We've heard something very much like this before, for example, in the first minuet from Orchestral Suite Number no. 1 in C major. Here's the first section, eight bars in all. <laughs> Although the second longer section introduces a few new motives, most are again familiar, especially the second betrill, which continues to play an important role in the first eight bars of the second section as we head toward E minor. Although that same trill plays a smaller role as we proceed through the rest of the section and more new motives are introduced, the melodic shape that opened the movement continues to play an important part as we head back to D major. The second minuet acts very much as a trio for this movement, its texture dramatically reduced to a pair of violins, viola, and continuo. The first four bars of the first section of the second minuet are new, with the main melodic interest seemingly handed off from the continual bass to the viola and then up to the first violin. The second four bars reintroduce our familiar second beat trill and head us to a cadence on A major. Here is the eight-bar opening section of minuet two. The second section, twice as long as the first, continues to trade off the most important melodic motives back and forth, but the first violin eventually seizes the ear's attention as it soars up higher in its range 
and we head to B minor. The last eight bars of the second section return us largely to the motives from the first section, with our second betrayal making two appearances right before we cadence in D major and return to repeat the first minuet. We close with a réjouissance, another unusual movement and not particularly typical for a late Baroque dance suite. It's generally assumed to be of a buoyant or rejoicing character and was also employed from time to time by Handel. The movement is in a lively 3-4 time, and the high-spirited melody abounds with trills, rapidly ascending scale lines and occasional syncopations. The first violins and oboe carry the main melodic activity, abetted by the trumpets for the opening two bars, but all the accompanying instruments contribute to the rhythmic energy, with Bach's favorite rhythmic figure of an eighth followed by two sixteenths bouncing around throughout the texture, especially in the last half of the section. Here is the entire first section. The second section, initially dominated by the oboes, begins in similar fashion, but is soon characterized by an even greater density of tightly packed rhythmic cells. The strings soon add their voices to the mix, increasing the sense of exuberance still further. As the second section continues, we touch on other key centers, and eventually pause on D minor, where the mood turns a bit more serious for a while, when some surprisingly passionate chromaticism is introduced by syncopated figures over a dominant pedal. But the drama is short-lived, and soon we return to D major, and the familiar jaunty rhythms take us to the final cadence and the conclusion of the suite as a whole. Here's the second section of the movement. So there we have Bach's four orchestral suites. Of course, as I'm sure you've observed, there is in each one of them always a bit of a contradiction between the rather serious-minded French overture that opens each of the suites with its slow, dignified, rather ceremonial beginning and the often intricate fugue that follows, with the lighter dances that come after it, with their catchy, often repeated rhythms and simpler, often more repetitive tunes. But if you consider the context in which these works were most likely performed, 
secular occasions, sometimes even informal ones, rather than sacred events, it's a bit less surprising that Bach would be perfectly happy to display just a little bit of his erudition while also being perfectly willing to win over the gallery with the playful rhythms and melodies with which each of the suites is populated. And we're not finished with traditional Baroque suite movements yet. In the next episode, we're going to take a look at some of the well-known suites for solo cello.